0: What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity, anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. When I was 16, I moved to Madrid, Spain to do a high school semester abroad. It was the first time I'd been in a different country than the United States, and I was amazed at all the ways Spaniards lived differently than me, like taking long naps in the middle of the day, And then staying up till midnight, eating and drinking in outdoor cafes. Or watching a man with a red cape theatrically kill an angry bull. Or eating a whole lot of jamón serrano. It was exciting to realize that so many things that had seemed natural to me as an American were really just a different way of life.
1: I think one of the central findings of anthropology and one of the big picture takeaways is that we are by and large creatures of nurture, rather than nature, right? So we are not hardwired to do X or Y. There is not a God gene. There is not, uh, you know, an innate disposition to, you know, th- these kinds of things which fuel and underpin a lot of Western social theory, but also contemporary social scientific disciplines and more kind of common understandings, you know, what we might call within anthropology, the folkways of the moderns, right? My name is Matthew Engelke. I'm a professor of religion at Columbia University, where I teach courses in the anthropology of religion, as well as on media, ritual, and
0: the body. In the mid-20th century, British anthropologists Victor and Edith Turner studied the Ndembu people of present-day Zambia. They wrote about their findings in their 1967 book, The Forest of Symbols. Through their study of this one African culture, they helped change the way anthropologists and other scholars understood humans everywhere.
1: This is what anthropology at its best does. It challenges our own understandings of common sense and what we can take for granted in terms of everything from from social relations to political organization to even the values that we hold.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Matthew Engelke to discuss Victor and Edith Turner's The Forest of Symbols.
1: Anthropology as a a modern academic discipline really got its roots in the 1850s and 60s. And of course, there are a number of important things that are happening at this period of time, Um, primarily the Western expansion of empires Um, It was in countries and nations such as France and England, uh, and also the United States, in which anthropology first took shape. And it was primarily driven by uh, the the kinds of encounters that we were seeing during the the colonial period with radically different uh, cultures and, and ways of life.
0: At this time, France, England, and the United States had colonies around the world. Colonization was, of course, primarily about brutal resource extraction. But colonial powers were also very interested in studying the new cultures they were encountering.
1: So it was driven by the dual emphases of curiosity, but also uh, colonial power.
0: In the mid-19th century, various anthropological institutions were established, such as the American Ethnological Society in New York and the Ethnological Society of London. Because anthropology was such a new field, early anthropologists drew heavily on already-established fields such as anatomy, linguistics, and ethnology. And after Darwin published The Origin of Species, the theory of evolution began to take hold in various corners of the scientific community.
1: In those early days, there was a a very strong, um, also push for social evolutionism. So it was driven by uh, the, the work of Darwin, which then comes into anthropology through such figures as Herbert Spencer, and whether or not we could um, apply what Darwin was finding in the realm of biology to the realm of society.
0: By the turn of the 20th century, anthropology was getting firmly established and legitimized in universities.
1: Institutions such as uh, Oxford University and Columbia University um, where, which became important early centers, first started hiring anthropologists. And the, the real crux of, of anthropology at that period of time um, was grappling with the diversity of cultures and how to understand the diversity of cultures against a, a, a backdrop assumption, often at the time, that there was some kind of unity underlying these cultures. So the tension between universality and particularity, right? What makes us the same and what makes us different.
0: Humans have always been aware that there are differences between peoples and cultures. But as anthropology developed as a discipline, Western researchers began to look at different cultures with a growing recognition that their own ways of life weren't necessarily the most correct or advanced, but instead just different.
1: I think what starts to become a distinctive aspect of the anthropological approach Right around the turn of the 20th century is a recognition that the ways in which we think about the world, whoever we happen to be, right, Victorian gentlemen or officers of the Smithsonian Institution, um, the ways in which we think about the world and how the world is organized might not be the natural way, might not be the... uh, might not be the, the, the rightfully privileged way. In other words, you start to see uh, in the 1920s the development of what the anthropologist Bronislaw Malinowski called the native's point of view. That is to say, we need to take seriously the way in which other people understand the world, challenging our own common sense presuppositions.
0: Many of these early anthropologists saw value in studying other cultures because they revealed the beautiful variety of human life ways. And over time, scholars of this new field worked to refine its research methods.
1: Figures like Franz Boas in the United States and Bronislaw Malinowski in the United Kingdom were two of the the, the founding fathers. Um, and, you know, what's, what's interesting about both Boaz and Malinowski is that they both insisted on what became the hallmark of the anthropological method, at least within the Anglophone world, which was in-depth fieldwork with
0: a particular group of people. This anthropological method that Boaz and Malinowski helped establish quickly became standard and was the approach Victor Turner would be trained in when he was getting his start in the field.
1: He was born in Glasgow in 1920, um, and he grew up uh, without his father around. His mother and father were, um, were, were estranged, um, and he spent most of
0: his time with his mother, who was, a, who was an actress in the Scottish National Theatre. Turner attended the University College London, where he initially studied poetry and classics. But soon after he enrolled, World War II broke out. During the Second World War,
1: Turner was a conscientious objector, which at at the time carried a huge amount of stigma, right? Because it was seen as, um, uh, you know, a a kind of a a dereliction of duty to the nation. Um, So he ended up serving in a bomb disposal unit in Oxfordshire during the Second World War. And it was there where he had had his university studies interrupted that he um, really started
0: to discover his
1: anthropological sensibility and his interest in uh,
0: other cultures. By chance, Turner met a group of like-minded people in his bomb disposal unit. They were very interested in various types of art and cultural expression, including Buddhism and French symbolist poetry. And their conversations sparked Turner's interest in learning about other cultures and ways of life. After the war, he returned to University College and shifted his studies to anthropology. After graduating, he pursued a doctorate in anthropology at Manchester University.
1: He received his anthropological training and education under the work of of a South African at the University of Manchester named Max Gluckman. Now Max Gluckman, who ruled at the University of Manchester, Um, from the 1950s onwards, was this incredibly charismatic figure. And he drew a large number of students with whom he engaged in a series of, you know, very significant debates to forward the field of anthropology in the 1950s and 60s. And I I think part of what gave Gluckman his edge is that he came from South Africa He was a South African Jew, he was a Marxist. He was seen as someone who, not coming from the elite uh, center of of English society, British society, but someone from the colonial periphery. And that I think gave him an incredibly valuable perspective. And it was a bit of grit in the oyster with respect to the ways in which they approached the anthropological project.
0: Gluckman's charisma captivated Turner and further solidified his interest in anthropology. And Gluckman's many connections in Central and Southern Africa shaped the research that Turner would become famous for.
1: The figures of the Manchester School, as it came to be known, were working in mostly colonial contexts in Central and Southern Africa. And they were deeply interested in the ways in which colonialism was affecting local communities and and ways of life.
0: Europeans began colonizing this part of Africa in the 17th century. England, the Netherlands, France, and Belgium established colonies in Central and Southern Africa to extract gold, diamonds, ivory, rubber, and other natural resources. The European influence drastically changed life for the local populations. And unlike some other anthropologists, students from the Manchester School didn't turn their eyes away from these changes. In fact, many came to these regions specifically to study the impact Europeans were having on the local populations.
1: There's a real tension, I think, within a lot of anthropological work between romantic and realistic views of society. A lot of anthropologists are are, are very romantic. There's a certain kind of romanticism to the discipline of anthropology. Which wants to emphasize um, uh, the you know the, the, the valuable seemingly timeless life ways of, of the other and the lessons that we can learn
0: this anthropological approach had a particular vision of non European cultures
1: this idea of a pristine way of life a uh, small scale society in which there's a kind of um, you know, authentic existence and connection to the natural world, uh, unadulterated by the trappings of modernity um, in which some kind of true expression of the human character can be can be lived out, right? Um, but of course, no life way is timeless. No life way is stuck or, or fixed. Um, and, uh, you know, in the 1950s, Certainly, uh, it was impossible to travel to to Central Africa and find some kind of, um, you know, pristine society which hadn't been touched by the forces or the the influences of
0: modernity. This romantic view wasn't only factually inaccurate, it was also based in fantasy.
1: It's you projecting onto another group of people or, or, or some imagined group of people your own fairy tales, right? I mean, that's one, that, you know, that's, that's, that's one reading of, of the Romantic Strain of Anthropology. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's a reading we need to, to grapple with.
0: Many of Gluckman's students were interested in studying the developing urban centers and mining towns. These mines, established by European colonizers, brought together many people from different backgrounds and cultures. They were interested in studying how these peoples of varying backgrounds negotiated their differences while living close together in this new capitalist economy. But Turner's interests lay outside the cities. He was drawn to more traditional pastoral forms of life, and that shaped the subcultures he chose to study. Turner actually spent
1: most of his time in, uh, in villages outside of this uh, urban setting. But in a way, his focus in a more kind of romantic vein of, of anthropological imagining in some ways turned out to be more radical or maybe just as innovative in the fact that he focused very squarely on the centrality of ritual to social life. And for a lot of his um, contemporaries, certainly at Manchester, ritual, religious tradition, symbolism, these kinds of things were... um, kind of icing on the cake or not not the real stuff of society right because it wasn't politics it wasn't economics and i think part of what turner shows in this focus on ritual is just how central ritual is to the work of politics to the work of economics to the fabric of society that ritual is not Um, the dressing. Ritual is not the colorful extra element. But it is through ritual that we articulate our values and live those values out. Right? And so this is a large part of what the forest of symbols is grappling with as, as a text.
0: So Victor Turner, I'd love to know the circumstance of how he arrived at the Ndembu people, um, and what was his field work
1: like? It was not unusual in the 1940s and 50s, or really up through the 1940s and 50s, for the field sites of um, anthropologists in training to be uh, negotiated between, you know, the, the individual involved— and the supervisor, so in this case, Max Gluckman, the professor at Manchester. And Gluckman, who had very, very strong connections in, uh, in Northern Rhodesia and down through South Africa, um, in a sense was able to kind of place his students with different uh, communities or groups of people.
0: Turner told Gluckman he was interested in studying ritual and he arranged to do his fieldwork in Northern Rhodesia, present day Zambia. It was the early 1950s, and Turner was working on his Ph.D. One of the most
1: important aspects, I think, of understanding his work, and it's relevant not only to how it was carried out, but to how it was produced, is that he went to the field with his family. And this was highly um, frowned upon by his professor. His professor did not want him to go with his uh, wife and young children to the field because it was seen as you know uh, you know a, a distraction it was seen as not a place to bring the family but uh, he did he insisted on it as did his wife his
0: supervisor allowed it on one condition
1: his supervisor made a stipulation the kind of stipulation that you know um, today would would strike us as as completely outrageous, um, but his supervisor is said to have um, agreed only by saying, okay, well, you can go to the field with Edie as long as she doesn't get pregnant in the field, right? So this kind of very, you know, patriarchal, authoritative structure of, of the academy and, and certain understandings of, of gender sensibilities, right, really dominated
0: um, the, the the big picture. Victor Turner's wife, Edith, did more than just care for the kids. She became a central part of the research team on this project and helped her husband write The Forest of Symbols. Victor, Edith, and their two young children lived with the Ndembu people for over two years. These are people
1: in, in what is today Zambia and parts of the Democratic Republic of Congo and even slightly into Angola uh, who at the time in the 1950s, lived in highly fluid villages. So they were matrilineal, but virilocal. So they traced their genealogies through the line of the mother, but uh, women lived with their husbands' kinfolk. So their allegiances are to a group of people with whom they do not necessarily uh, live. Right, because they are connected through the mother's line. And this is especially the case with the woman in question, the wife in question, um, because she doesn't feel an affinity or connection to her in-laws, if you will. And one of the things that stuck out for the Turners in their fieldwork was just how much this led to fission and fractures within social life. Contrary to the image of, you know, the romantic anthropological sense that oh, I want to go study this group of people who live in a kind of timeless tradition, where things never change and there's wonderful stability, in Dembu's social life was a constant. There was a constant state of change. There was a constant flux, and it wasn't all you know kind of peace love and happiness right there were there were there were tensions within the organization of social structure which were negotiated through and made sense of through ndembu ritual life
0: this is what turner was interested in how the ndembu community worked out these tensions through rites of passage
1: a rite of passage is a ritual which marks the transition from one state of being to another. So a rite of passage is something like a marriage or a funeral. Funerals are incredibly important rites of passage because they mark for us, whoever we are, the proper transition to death and in many cases, not all, but in many cases, the afterlife. So a rite of passage has to be held in order for this transformation to take place. The Forest of Symbols, which was published in 1967, is a collection of essays detailing both specific Ndembu rituals and more general Theories of how we should understand ritual symbolism and ritual processes, such as uh, rites of passage.
0: Many of Turner's essays in The Forest of Symbols focus on specific Ndembu rites of passage.
1: One of these is on the uh, girl's puberty ritual, which in the, the, the local language is called Nkanga. And what Turner does in this essay is delve into a very, very detailed analysis of all the symbolic elements of the ritual symbolism. The central symbol in the particular ritual here is what's called the, the, the symbolism of the milk tree. So the milk tree is an indigenous tree, which is called the milk tree because it emits a a white sap, which is uh, reminiscent of breast milk. So this is important to the ndembu because they are matrilineal. That is to say, again, they trace genealogy through the mother. So it is breast milk, which becomes the kind of master symbol of belonging and connection for a particular family, right? I think one of the things that really stands out about the ways in which Victor Turner addresses ritual symbolism is the depth to which he deconstructs the meaning and the significance of something seemingly as simple as the sap from a tree. And through his analysis of this milky white substance, he tells us about the ways in which the Ndembu understand matrilineal relations, about the differences between men and women, about the tensions between mothers and daughters, and about the ways in which the unity of the Ndembu people is both brought together through that symbol, but also challenged by that symbol.
0: One of Turner's big insights is that symbols often bring together seemingly contradictory elements.
1: And let's think about this with respect to, um, let's say, the American flag, right? Which is a symbol of unity, right? But the elements of that symbol also emphasize distinctiveness and uh, difference, right? You have 13 stripes for the 13 original colonies, and you have 50 stars, one for each of the existing states. And so within something like the flag of the United States, you can make an argument that this is a sign, oh, look, we're all one people. And yet at the same time, point to it and say, no, we're not all one people. We're 50 people. And oh, we need to understand ourselves against why are these 13 Right. Why are they privileged? Oh, because they're the original states. Right. So, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways in which um, ritual symbols or, 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 you know, central social symbols contain these 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 multilayered or, as he would put it, kind of polysemic elements. Right. We cannot ever reduce the significance or the meaning of a symbol to one thing. Right? And this is one of the most, I think, important aspects um, of his work.
0: What are the Turner's arguments about the social role of ritual?
1: Turner in The Force of Symbols makes a few very important points about ritual and ritual symbols. Maybe one of the most important is that ritual symbols produce action. Right? Ritual symbols motivate us to to do things in in the world, uh, ritual symbols also reflect our values and help us understand what it is we hold valuable. Right, I think one of the the, the central pillars of what he is arguing is that we can look at rituals as a kind of microcosm, a symbolic microcosm of a larger social order, right? And so we, we can read rituals as a, a, a manual or a map of who we are or what we are as a society.
0: And these findings about ritual and symbolism among the Ndembu are relevant beyond Ndembu culture.
1: Probably the most significant essay in The Force of Symbols is an essay on the concept of liminality, which Turner describes as the state of being betwixt and between. Liminality is often a central part of ritual action, and it is the moment of a ritual process in which the actors are no longer constrained by the structures or expectations of society.
0: One example is a student's passage from high school to college.
1: The summer between high school and college can be understood as a liminal period, right? And and this is something that the Turners and those who have been inspired by the Turners have uh, elaborated upon at great length. So what makes you liminal, right? Well, you are a high school graduate, but you are not yet a college student. So what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to enjoy a certain amount, I mean, at least in the, in the kind of, in, in one of the prototypes, you enjoy a certain amount of freedom from the strictures of expectation, right? You're no longer a student, you're no longer a child, but you're not yet an adult. So you are, as Turner put it, betwixt and between, okay? So, um, so what he showed in his work on liminality is how these liminal moments are central to our self-recognition of the structures under which we normally live, The function, if you will, of liminality is, on one account, very conservative. That is to say, you sometimes give people freedom to go wild. In the process of doing so, what you're really trying to do is help them to appreciate the norms of everyday life, right? So you have to leave something temporarily in order to understand the significance of the structures under which you normally operate,
0: right? Like when I go camping and I really miss my bed.
1: Exactly, right? When, yes, when you go... So, um, I mean, it, you know, it, it might seem a stretch to to, to link this to, um, you know, a, a, a ritual that takes place in, in Central Africa in the 1950s. But I think one of the real, uh, you know, one, one of the real kind of genius elements of Turner's work is the ability to show that the lessons of liminality apply. Now, let's think about this in relation, if I may, just for a second, to something that literally the entire world is undergoing at the moment, and that is the COVID pandemic. We are living now in a liminal moment. We, and by we, I mean the world. The world is living in a liminal moment. What does that mean? The normal rules have been suspended. The, the, the the, the, The structures of everyday life have been suspended. We are liminal. We are betwixt and between. And the question is, well, when we come out on the other end... What are the lessons we are going to have learned through this process of reflection? And Turner referred to the liminal period as a stage of reflection. What are the lessons we are going to have learned about what it is we want to uh, regain and what it is we want to reconstitute or reorganize in a new way?
0: In their later work, the Turners focused on liminality in the social movements of their time.
1: Both Victor and Edith Turner tried to show the ways in which, for example, most proximate to their own lives, the, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of countercultural movements of the 1960s fueled the potentials for social change around civil rights, around our understandings of gender and equality, uh, around the nature of all sorts of social hierarchies, right? They, they referred to this as a kind of um, uh, liminality, as a kind of what Turner called in his essay on liminality, a fruitful darkness. Liminality is a fruitful darkness. And I just love that phrase and the ways in which it allows us to reflect upon how structures hem us in and how we break free of those structures in certain moments and are given the opportunity, in some cases, to reinforce them, right? You say you know you like you don't want to give up your bed right you want to go camping every once in a while but it helps you appreciate your nice uh, fluffy pillow back home so uh, you know that's a that's a that's a that's a use of liminality that's a that's an outworking of liminal experiences um, in, in in which it, it allows us to appreciate that which we have but the Turners became increasingly interested in the. Even the revolutionary potentials of, of liminality.
0: How would you describe the longer term influence of, of the Turner's work um, and, and maybe of cultural anthropology as a whole? Um, how does the world look different because of their work?
1: The Forest of Symbols became very influential not only in anthropology but in history, in literary criticism in religious studies and in performance studies. These were all fields in which the work of Victor Turner and the work of Victor and Edith Turner really shaped debates about the the centrality of ritual, the ways in which we understand change in relation to continuity, and the importance of, of performance, right? Because rituals are performances. So you start to see in the, in the 70s and 80s uh, a huge upswell of work thinking about the performativity of life, not only in ritual context, but in day-to-day context. So these ideas of ritual performance becoming crucial tools with which to understand everyday social interactions easy, that we are always performing in certain roles. And it is the work of Turner, the work of the Turners together, which I think really helped um, helped us appreciate these kinds of approaches to the analysis of, of social life.
0: Through the forest of symbols, Victor and Edith Turner helped dethrone Western society as the universal, most sophisticated way to live. By stepping away from Western life and into Ndembu culture, they were able to see that what is actually universal is the complexity of life and human expression. Every culture is different, but they all negotiate these complexities through traditions and rituals.
1: A lot of anthropology has traditionally, and even still today, focused on, uh, let's call it other places, and again, wherever you are, there are always other places, right? And there are traditions of anthropology that have grown up not only in the United States, not only in say North America or Europe, but indeed in South Africa, in Brazil, in India, in China, all of these places have very strong traditions of anthropology. And there are are these kind of drives to understand difference, to understand the other. Um, which really, which really underpins uh, the, the general approach of of anthropology. The Forest of Symbols is, to my mind, one of the the most powerful and important expressions of what anthropology can bring to an understanding of ourselves. It is a book that allows us to delve deep into the seemingly inconsequential and insignificant aspects of something as seemingly obscure as a ritual symbol. And in the process, show us actually how that ritual symbol reflects and articulates the values or positions that we hold dear or, or are supposed to hold dear. The Forest of Symbols is a book that really allows us to understand how the seemingly insignificant details, the seemingly uh, uh, simply colorful details of life are much more than window dressing, are much more than the 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 frills, and... Really, as Turner would put it, produce action. Really matter to the constitution of who we are.
0: Rit Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Ferrandu. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petschy. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.